Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. Tajikistan's government has become one of the most repressive governments in the world. In Central Asia, the government of Tajik President Imomali Rahman is competing with Turkmenistan for the dubious distinction of being the most despotic in the region. And for those of you who might be unfamiliar with Turkmenistan, it's often compared to North Korea. Turkmen authorities crushed domestic opposition years ago, and the Tajik government has been working for years to do the same. And Tajik authorities do not confine their campaign of repression against perceived political opponents to those inside the country's borders. The U.S.-based organization Crude Accountability just published a report on enforced disappearances in Tajikistan that details the Tajik government's campaign of transnational repression. Here to talk about that report and about other recent developments in Tajik authorities' ongoing campaign against perceived political opponents are Bakhtiyar Safarov, founder of the Central Asia Consulting in the USA, who is originally from Gorno-Badakhshan Autonomous Oblast of eastern Tajikistan, and Steve Sverdlov, a rights lawyer who has spent many years focusing on Central Asia, currently teaching the practice of human rights at the University of Southern California, and is the author of the Crude Accountability Report. So thank you both for joining me. And Steve, first, tell me about this report. What's in it? Well, and thanks for having us on, Bruce. Well, about three years ago, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe adopted a broader definition of torture one that is more in line with the way we understand torture in international law, which essentially recognized that torture can also include this particular crime that we call an enforced disappearance. And that con- that term is sometimes confusing t- to people. What it means is that a government takes custody or control of an individual, detains them or arrests them secretly or even publicly, but then refuses to acknowledge that they're holding that person. The person goes missing, is held incommunicado. And as long as that person is missing and unaccounted for, the crime continues. And this is a particular kind of terror, because if you think about torture, you know, someone is tortured in a prison cell, and then they leave that prison cell, and there's some closure, there's some end to that torture. And uh, the person, the victim, can start to, to either move on or deal with that situation, the family members. But in the case of someone just literally disappearing, you never get that closure, that terror continues and goes on and on and on. That's what makes it a unique crime that all international scholars have recognized deserves its own definition, its own protections from that crime. And that that moved the international community to actually create a, a separate treaty that is devoted to this issue. It's called the International Convention for the Protection of All Persons from Enforced Disappearances. And the reason I'm giving this context is to um, explain that Tajikistan, as, as you've already mentioned, is such an outlier, is such a pariah, has distinguished itself in so many ways. But one of the ways in terms of its terrible human rights record, but we haven't really paid attention to this particular area, and it deserves attention in Tajikistan uh, because of a, a number of things that I think we're going to get into um, that have happened over the last 30 years. But it's important to note just at the start that Tajikistan is exceptional in this region of the former Soviet space and Central Asia for being one of the few countries that has not signed and and not ratified this particular treaty. And that's why Crude Accountability decided to take this on along with some other regions 
um, in, in the wider former Soviet space where disappearances are a problem. And when I started looking at this issue, it was necessary first to understand it uh, historically, and that logically led me to look at the history of the Civil War, which, again, is, despite being so important and, and so formative for Tajikistan, isn't talked enough, talked about enough or understood. And, and of course, Bakhtiar on this podcast uh, is an expert on this as well. But I'll just say that this practice of disappearing people, people going missing, and then all traces of them vanishing, that of course comes from the, the five-year bloody civil war in Tajikistan that lasted from 1992 to 1997. And there were abuses on all sides. And one of the one of the sad legacies of that conflict is that even after the peace process, the government took no steps to establish any mechanisms or databases or archives that family members could go to and find information about their loved ones. So we don't really have, unfortunately, a good handle on how many people went missing, disappeared, or remained disappeared. There, of course, were reports of mass graves. And in 2019, the UN thought this was such an important issue that they sent a working group to Tajikistan to look at the look at the legacy of the civil war and look at disappearances in general. And they said that they believe that thousands of people, that's a lot, may still be uncounted, unaccounted for in Tajikistan. And uh, they, they did uh, want to know more. They wanted to do more examination. That was very difficult. And they, they requested, or you could say they demanded that the Tajik government redefine the law, that they introduce a new crime on enforced disappearances, a separate crime, and that they sign this treaty that I'd mentioned a few moments ago. Tajikistan, over the last four years, not only has shirked that responsibility, but has gone much further down the path of committing this abuse. Now, that was the Civil War, and that was a particular wartime context or a conflict context in which people went missing. But most of this report is devoted to what happens next. And this is really where it got revealing and and disturbing as we got into this research. Now, about 10 years into Rahmon's position as president, around 2002, 2003, that's the first time in the post-war context, outside of wartime, where we saw disappearances being used, at least that we can document in, in, in some substantial way. And we broke up the periods of enforced disappearances or the practice of what we call incommunicado detention. That's where someone is held, held incommunicado, held isolated, but then later reemerges. We divided that up into three historical periods for Tajikistan. I'll explain why. Rahmon started to use this practice early on. I call it this period of testing repression or feeling out you know, the possibilities for repression in the second decade of his rule. So around 2002, 2003, it's only been you know, five, six years since the peace agreement. And as we remember, 30% of government posts were allocated to the opposition, including the uh, Islamic Renaissance Party of Tajikistan. And the first case of a disappearance that we have documented was against a member of the IRPT in 2000, in June 2003. That was against Shamsuddin Shamsuddinov, who had gone to Russia and was basically nabbed and kidnapped and then reemerges in Dushanbe and was not given access to a lawyer. And there were serious concerns of him being tortured. He was tortured with electric shocks. So and this is this is going back a long time, back to 2003, right? Exactly 20 years ago. 
but it's interesting because I think this first period is when Rahmon was looking around and, and figuring out how far he could go and what response there would be from the international community. And about two years later, you get another figure named Muhammad Ruzi Iskandarov, who's a leader of the Democratic Party of, of Tajikistan. And he was also, of course, considered to be a political opponent. And he was also apprehended by unknown individuals. We're not sure were they security services, were they were they uh, were they police, or were they mafia underworld? It's hard to say. But he is also brought to Tajikistan by plane and reemerges, and then gets a 23-year sentence. So uh, what's really really disturbing here is that I think Rahmon was realized that he had this formula, which was given that you have millions of Tajik migrants and some Tajik opposition in Russia. He could rely on a much larger partner on Russia. He could punch above his weight, as I've said many times, whereas Tajikistan has modest resources, but they were able to partner with Russia's repressive security apparatus. And at that time, as we remember, Russia wasn't exactly what it was today. It, 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 was, a, it was more free than it is today. And yet, when it came to Central Asians and Central Asian dissidents, they were always in the most vulnerable position. And in, in some ways, the repression that Russian security services and Tajik security services were able to implement against Central Asians, it kind of presaged and and uh, it was a preview of what would come uh, for, I think, the rest of Russian society as, we, as we're seeing now. So these incidents, they start to occur with increasing frequency in this first period, roughly 2002 to 2012. There was another case, Nizamhon Jurayev, you might remember him. He was a prominent businessman and he had engaged in a, some criticism and had a falling out with President Rahmon and his relatives. And he also goes missing and later reemerges, resurfaces in Tajikistan. And in some ways, at that time, these cases seemed to be exceptional. They seemed to be shocking. And they did garner the attention of organizations like Amnesty International. But there was no real systematic response. And I don't think there had yet been a sense that this was a systematic practice. And there's another case I, I choose to sort of put it in this this first category, although it falls a little bit later. That's 2014. Bruce, you probably remember the case of Alexander Sadikov. He was a, a Tajik researcher who was working. He was doing his PhD in Canada and had come back to Tajikistan to do some research actually on uh, conflict issues and had visited Horog in the Pamir region. And he's doing interviews about, about uh, ironically enough, about preventing conflict and he is nabbed by security service agents. He's disappeared. He re he resurfaces a few days later, uh, visibly, sort of visibly, either on drugs or sedated or or, or post torture on Tajikistan state TV. And you know, all of these cases share this feature of disappearing and then reemerging. And that's where that's the time in which authorities can torture you. That's a time in which your due process rights are violated. That's a time in which it's a sort of a rights-free zone. There's absolutely no holds barred. So this period, I would say by 2012, if we're looking at when Tajikistan's human rights record really goes off a cliff, you can, you, you're really looking at 2012 to 2015 in a way. Um, 2012, you have the first major incursion into the Pamir region, a, a so-called law enforcement operation that included dozens of deaths. And at the same time, you have the emergence of a stronger opposition, which really scares Rahmon, um, both the opposition in Russia under the title of the Group 24, led by Kuvatov, 
a leader in, in Russia and also in Tajikistan, parliamentary elections that had that the IRPT had done very well in really had started to scare Rahmon and led to plans to fully dismantle the political opposition movement. So by 2012, that's when we start to calculate a, a, a dramatic increase of the use of enforced disappearances. And in the second part of the report, we just have too many cases for me to mention here. Um, some people disappearing from Russia, some people disappearing in Tajikistan itself. But one of the most notable, Bruce, is that of Ekson Adinaev, a young man, um, only 24 years old when he went to, when he disappeared from St. Petersburg in May 2015. He was in St. Petersburg and literally was supposed to meet with someone and then just disappears off the face of the earth. Um, we know that he had been active in Group 24 and active with the youth of Tajikistan for revival. And he was a blogger and he represented the, the, this younger generation that was more internet savvy. There were protests in Moscow and St. Petersburg at that time emerging. And it was it, there was really hope in a way among some of these activists that they could have a dialogue with Tajik authorities, that they could force a new conversation, a reckoning with the repression and the corruption. But it all went the opposite direction. Tajikistan doubled down. They disappeared. We don't know if he's alive or he's dead. We're not sure what happened to him. And in this case, the Russian security services and the Tajik security services really bear joint responsibility. And you know, initially, we wanted to actually name this report after something that Exxon's mother had said to me. She said to me when I interviewed her that uh, Exxon disappeared for freedom. And he disappeared simply for wanting to discuss how Tajikistan could be a more free and open society. And so his case is really indicative, I think, of the terror of the suffering that is inflicted on families when their relatives go missing. Another case from this second period is Maksudi Bragimov, who was stabbed in Russia. He was also affiliated with the Youth of Tajikistan for Revival and, and Group 24. He's stabbed and then he's later kidnapped. He resurfaces in Tajikistan and he gets, I believe, a 17-year sentence. He's still serving that sentence today. And then as the, as the Tajik government sees that there's no real response to this, that, that Russia is a perfect place to commit these crimes, they start to expand. And in this 10-year period from roughly 2012 to 2022, we see a dramatic increase, as I was saying. We see people disappeared from Turkey. We see people nabbed in Belarus. We even see cases where, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, Interpol is used to detain people in places like Greece, Kazakhstan, and other places. And I just want to, again, stress that disappearances are not only cases that happen in other countries. They also happen in Tajikistan. So, for example, the wife and the son of the IRPT deputy head, Mahmoud Ali Haid, they also were taken, they went missing, disappeared for several days after making critical remarks about, you know, or concerns that uh, her husband was being tortured. They literally disappeared and then reemerged. And this is a major abuse. And I'll just, not to take too much more time, but the third and final period that we document in this report, and in some ways the most disturbing, is this period from 2022 onward. And as we know, 2022, or even going back to late 2021, the Tajik government opens its worst yet crackdown on the Pamirs, engaging in extrajudicial killings of numerous individuals, peaceful protesters, but along with that, mass arrests of 
not just civil society activists, human rights defenders, and journalists, but entrepreneurs, cultural figures, religious figures, and in nearly every single detention, in nearly every single arrest, there is an element of a disappearance or what we call incommunicado detention. That means that after the initial period of their arrest, they're not provided access to a lawyer. Um, that's usually done to make it easier to get a forced confession. And then they reemerge later. And that's a very serious abuse. And I'll just end with the observation that this third phase or fourth, if you want to include the civil war, there are more cases that include an enforced disappearance or incommunicado detention element than all of the periods previous to this one. So this shows that this pro problem is, is not just increasing, but it requires urgent attention. Okay, thank you. And that's a perfect time to bring in Bakhtiar here. Uh, you know, incommunicado detention is a hallmark of, of what's been happening with the Pamiri community from Gornobadak Shan. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And also, you know, there's been this enforced disappearance even in Russia where they've uh, tracked down Pamiris, some of whom were very well known uh, and seem to have had very tenuous ties to any, any criticism of the government. Could you talk about that, please? Sure. Thank you very much, Bruce and Steve, uh, for for the invite to my favorite uh, podcast on Central Asia matters. It's it's a great honor for me. Uh, yes, I did I did read uh, Steve's report, and I, I I just it's I would like to thank him first of all, and thank donors who provided you know resources to to make this report possible. So it's it's I would say it's one of the most comprehensive uh, reports that's written nowadays in forced disappearance and uh, it, it just strong I just strongly recommend for the people who really uh, dive into you know Central Asian matters and decision makers strongly recommend to read that yes and there is a, a significant portion of the reports that is dedicated to Gabao I can I can vouch for this so it's 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 very very true. So, uh, I mean, you know, we see that cases with Amridin Alawat Shoyev, it's also described here, who was actually detained in uh, in a border with uh, Russia and Ukraine when he was trying to to leave the Russia towards Ukraine. And then the second, I see Faro Muzergashev, who, who who was a presidential candidate, who, who was also you know detained. In, in Tajikistan, and we also see Oraz Vazirbekov and, and Ranzi Vazirbekov, who who also uh, disappeared in uh, in Moscow, uh, and then appeared to be on TV in in Tajikistan 24 hours later, and then later on they were both sentenced in in Tajikistan uh, right now, and we see Pulot Ruslan Pulotbekov, who was also you know, native of Gobao. And uh, again, these are the, like, it's very important, like what Steve is saying, these are the the, the matters that have been reported. There are numerous, numerous uh, situations where they get, you know, disappear and uh, they go to the relatives and say, listen, you know, we're going to release them soon uh, and just make sure don't tell anyone. And then they end up not doing that. So a lot of cases happens like this that don't get covered uh, on, on the media. So that's that's very, I think we should have to know that as well. And I would say also that uh, this is a very strong first step and uh, very, uh, you know, good recommendation to the, to, the, to the government of Tajikistan and to the partners 
OAC, US, Europe, and other actors that I think that definitely needs, needs to be followed. And it's also a first step. I think there is definitely needs to be a follow-up because this is something that we've been saying for for years now, and especially after that May 2022 to launch and, and, and a more, you know, investigation to, to exactly like, you know, I know those situations, most of the situation go back to civil war, but we actually have a present case study and a situation that just happened while you and I had this Majlis podcast and those uh, situations were evolving. So meaning that we have necessary uh, documents and necessary evidence to to launch a full-scale inv- investigation, which I think that report could be a very, very solid background uh, into the next step. So we're l- really, really looking forward to that. Okay, thank you. Uh, and let me remind that we're talking about the recent techniques the Tajik government's been using to in its campaign of repression against perceived political opponents. And my guests are Steve Sverdlov, a rights lawyer who spent many years focusing on Central Asia and is currently teaching the practice of human rights at the University of Southern California. And he is also the author of Crude Accountability's recently released report, Enforced Disappearances in Tajikistan, and Bakhtiar Safarov, founder of the Central Asia Consulting Firm in the USA who is originally from the Gabal region of Tajikistan. And, and uh, Bhakti, I just want to follow up a little bit on what you were saying. You know, we've heard that literally hundreds of people from, from Gabal have been arrested since May 2022. Now, we hear that they're detained, and then you don't hear any information about them practically at all until you hear that they were convicted at, in pretrial detention at a court. Um, can can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, this this is really the incommunicado detention that Steve was talking about. How many people are roughly, I mean, how, uh, who's been affected by this? Yeah, the, the, I, I don't have exact figures, but uh, the number is above 200 people right now that uh, have been detained, and now most of them are already transferred to penal facilities. Yeah, you're right, Bruce. We don't get too much information about, about uh, the situation, mainly because of the relatives don't want, you know, if, if let's say if anything happens and then it, the situation become public, I don't think the relative will have an opportunity to visit them or give them or give them uh, any, you know, food. Because I've been in this situation when my relatives were also politically detained and I was there. So we, we got, you know, they told us, make sure nobody knows. So otherwise we won't let you to bring, you know, any any you know food or anything so and i understand that situation unless it gets really really critical uh they they the parents try not to try not to talk about this uh you know what's what's actually happening and i think there is also uh, there is a big need of uh, finding a way to monitor the situation of what's happening in the prisons right now because we know that there is a there have been multiple cases where the prisoners, you know, allegedly, you know, for whatever, you know, situation they got killed. There was an unrest, which I don't know, you know, how can anyone can do an unrest in a prison which they literally can't even breathe. So, and then a lot of people got killed during those those unrest and, you know, a lot of 
you know, notable uh, people from IRPT, uh, which, we, you know, I, I can look up the names. They were killed during during those uh, prison shootings. So we are, that's why there is a very important moment for us to make sure that organizations who are in Tajikistan make sure they have, uh, you know, even even we don't have the information, so they would have an access to the prisons to make sure that none of these shootings, hopefully, that won't happen, so they won't they won't get killed. Okay, thanks. You know, and, and Steve Bakhtiar brings up an interesting point here. You know, crude accountability has as part of the Approve They Are Alive campaign, which deals with Turkmenistan and people who have been sentenced to prison, and then we never hear about them. Tajikistan doesn't seem to be that far away from reaching that point. Yeah, no, I mean, Tajikistan, you know, I think recently another activist from Tajikistan, a journalist, Humayro Bakhtiar, who you know, who's been on this podcast and and I think spoke at the the really um, important conference by the Kazakhstan Bureau of the Rule of Law recently, remarked that Tajikistan and Turkmenistan have to be seen really in the same category. Uh, and in some ways, Tajikistan may be even overtaking Turkmenistan in the cruelty, the the sadistic nature of the uh, of the abuses. And you know, I know we were going to mention some of those things today, but really this this tactic of disappearing people, but then going after their relatives, going after their elderly parents, their siblings, um, who have really absolutely nothing to do with the political activity, which by the way is peaceful on the part of, of those protesting, you know, those sorts of tactics are, there's a special place for that, uh, re- which is really the most repressive, the worst of the worst. And I, I think Bakhtiar is absolutely right. I mean, I just want to echo one thing before I move on from the prisons. He's he's right that the International Committee of the Red Cross, which had been more active and able to visit prisons in Central Asia, you know, let's say 20 years ago, they have some periodic access, but nothing regular, nothing on the order of what we need to see, because there is an epidemic of torture and abuse. And of course, it's not only in prisons, but it's in pretrial detention facilities. These are really like I was saying, rights-free zones and the impunity that Rahmon has been able to to practice with for, for many years has led to this really grotesque situation where, you know, Bruce, you're monitoring this all the time. Almost every week, we're getting these horrific accounts of either transnational uh, kidnappings or these sort of thuggish, really completely cheap tactics of, of calling in, like I was saying, a 90-year-old mother and forcing her to make a video against her son for for peaceful political opposition. Thanks. And, you know, I wanted, before we move on too much further, I wanted to mention that also. Uh, and Bakhtiar, I can bring, yeah, actually both of you, but I would like Bakhtiar to do it first. When the Bazarbeka brothers, for instance, disappeared in Russia and then were brought back, you know, they, they, all of a sudden they appeared on state TV. And this is this has gotten to be a favorite tactic of the Tajik government, right? That these people are banished, and then all of a sudden they they show up on TV and to say that they did they weren't kidnapped, they voluntarily returned because they want to be part of some investigation or something like that. I mean, what do you think of when you see that kind of stuff on Tajik TV? Yeah, this is the, yeah, I agree. It's it's just again, you know, going back to the report, it's showing that. The, the nature of this government, the nature of where, you know, the, the, it's just the, the whole criminality. And, and that's like the favorite phrase that I got is like in a book, The Nay Communist, uh, that W. Uh, Gleon Skousen described the communist as a, as a criminal enterprise. And the whole these countries, 
being back, you know, from broken up from Soviet Union, they didn't actually establish themselves as a as a as a real real countries who observe the law. And of course, you you see this situation where the people without any charges, without any, you know, they just start appearing on TV and it just. I don't know if any other countries is, is is using this, you know, tactics where they bring the people, make them speak, bring their relatives, you know, parents. It's just it's just something that uh, I mean, it's it's obviously I- illegal. It's it's illegal activities by 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 all means, which is became a normal in Tajikistan now. Can I just uh, chime in, uh, Bruce, for a moment and say that? When you mentioned the voluntary return issue, I, I was just going through the report to, to, to recheck this, and I'm sure I'm not including every case, but there's at least five uh, situations like this. I mean, Nizam Khan Jurayev back in 2009 said he had returned voluntarily uh, when he was put on t- TV. Uh, Maksud Ibrahimov, who I said earlier was stabbed and then resurfaces in Tajikistan, was given 17 years, also was forced to say he had come back voluntarily. Uh, the Vazir Bekovs, uh, also someone from Turkey in the report who was affiliated with the IRPT, and his, his name was Naum John Sharipov, who you know opened up a, a tea house in Turkey and was harassed for a few days and then disappears from Turkey and resurfaces. He actually called me, I remember at the time, this is I think 2015 or so, and 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 was put up to it by the security services to call Human Rights Watch, who I was representing at the time, and and says, I just want to tell you, I came back of my own free will, <laughs> and it was, I mean, it was ridiculous, and and it, but it leads back to your question, which is, why, how does this play with the Tajik public or with the wider international community? I think everyone can see see through it, and so it it, it really makes you wonder. You know, why do they go through the motions? Why do they do these things? And I think what it probably comes back to is the isolation or is the, in a way, the echo chamber that dictators function in, that what they what they regard as normal or legitimate or somehow a cleansing of their activity, clearly there there isn't a conversation where international actors are speaking with Rahman or his close advisors and saying, this has to stop. This is absolutely absurd. You're not fooling anyone with this this tactic. So that sort of, I think that criticism, if it's been delivered, it's been delivered in far far too soft uh, or timid a way um, because it, because clearly they they are not fooling anyone. Yeah, I just you know I wanted to mention this when I when I see these confessions, I'm thinking it, it's like the show trial tactics, right? You know that they're, they're, they're I'm not sure why they're doing this, and everyone sees it's false, but but you know that that. This person comes up there and, and makes this confession or, or this statement that they haven't been forcibly brought there. And like I said, it just it has that whole air of the show trial. Yeah, if I could add also, it's not only, you know, when they bring people, it's also in any cases, like say when they captured, you know, the women with head, heads carved, you know, that and they when they tried to. Uh, discredit their religious leaders. They do the same thing. They just put cameras. In some cases, the hidden cameras in their homes, in the you know private residences, and they just broadcasted. It. It's just it's just tactics that normal countries would 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 never use in in such manner. 
Okay, let's, I want to bring it up to the most recent developments. Uh, we know that Rock, President Rachman, as I mentioned at the start, had made a visit to Berlin recently. He was part of this C5 group that's been kind of going around the world, uh, the five Central Asian presidents. Um, he, 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 it was interesting that of all the five Central Asian presidents, he was the only one that actually drew a hostile crowd. Of, of Tajik citizens who, had, who were forced to flee their country uh, or face jail terms uh, and ended up in Europe and they all gathered. And after that, because it, it was so embarrassed, obviously embarrassing and really what he deserved, uh, that he was, you know, there was protests against him. There was people lining his route uh, into town and, and, and one actually even threw eggs at his car. Um, and then they went after the relatives in Tajikistan. Now, this is an old tactic, too. Steve, you'd mentioned it. Both of you have mentioned this, too, that they really they go after your relatives. So first, Steve, how many people do we know? How many people, relatives in Tajikistan, the unfortunate relatives in Tajikistan, how many have they detained? Well, according to the the most the latest accounts, and you know, today is October twelfth as we record this, the the number of detained individuals was was closer to a hundred and and rising, and you know this is coinciding with a period of time that historically or traditionally sees a lot of repression. Um, the time that we're speaking today is happening during the OSCE Human Rights or Human Dimension Implementation Meeting, which is Europe's largest human rights conference annually. And it's the one forum, really one of the only forums, uh, where civil society activists can confront and have and share a table with or share a stage with the government delegations of the OSCE region. Interestingly, though, Tajikistan has been so criticized at this conference that they, they cut and run. And for the last several years, the Tajik government delegation has not been showing up to Warsaw where the conference is held. But what they typically do in late September and October is as they hear the criticism from civil society activists in Warsaw, they start to go after their families. So back in 2016, there was a really, really uh, disturbing event in which the families of four different speakers at that conference were uh, sort of mobbed by by crowds uh, around their family homes back in Tajikistan. Some of them, you know, had rocks were being thrown at the houses. In other cases, children uh, relatives of the activists were shamed in school. Um, videos were produced, and so what happened after Berlin was was really part and parcel of that tactic. Again, a really shameful and and distinguishing feature of Tajikistan. But we've got about a hundred, Bruce, and then today there was a report of the activist Sharafidim Gadoev, who was present in the Berlin protest, and is pretty notable. And in fact, I should mention. Godoyev himself was profiled in this report as being disappeared from Russia, although he had refugee status in the Netherlands when this happened. He was disappeared from Russia, returned to Tajikistan, also paraded on TV, also said he was there voluntarily. But his is the one happy case, maybe the only case I can think of now, where someone was released and returned to back to the Netherlands. He participated in the Berlin protests and was speaking on the mic. And his mother, Oishamo Abdulloyeva, was visited, I think, yesterday by the authorities. They cut off electricity to her house and said, your son criticized the president, so we have to cut off your electricity. So it's, it's true collective punishment in the classic sense and, and, uh, and is just uh, shocking. No, thank you. And I'll, I'll let you both have last comments in a second. But before we do that, I want to move back over to you for a minute, Bakhtiar. It's been a while since we dealt with Gornal Badakhshan Gabao on this program, a few, several weeks anyway. Uh, one, could you bring us up to what's been happening recently? And I'm thinking um, 
for the benefit of our audience. Uh, the Pamiri community of, of Gabao are uh, Shiite, Shiite Muslims. Uh, they are followers of the Aga Khan. Now, they've been dismantling all the good works that the Aga Khan has done in Gabao over, over three decades. Uh, and the most recent news I heard included that they were nationalizing the medical center that he built. Is this true? Yeah, the, the nationalizing of the medical center. So now, you know, I know Pamir Inside reported that it, it was nationalized and the doors were blocked. And then the, there was a, another report coming actually from the organization saying that the information of Pamir Inside is not true. So it's it's still not confirmed. I, I don't know what's really happening on the on the ground, but generally speaking, after Rahman's visit to the area, uh, we don't have that much information from from the from the ground, and and it's and it's and it's been quite. We don't know if if the suppression still exists. We just don't know. And I again, that's that's a downside that we have all you and everybody were alarming that listen. So that region is gonna be again like another part of Tajikistan where the vibrant civil society will no longer exist. And that's exactly what we're having right now. No reports, no life, no activism. And it's just, and, and this is just the least I can say. So that was all our efforts during this last year. We were trying to raise an awareness to save this island of democracy in Central Asia which you know we couldn't. So now, right now, I, I I don't have any anything to report. We don't know what's going on. The only thing I know that the activists who who managed to, to go from outside of Tajikistan now actually uh, forming the group. They did participated in 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 activities in in Berlin in the recent activities. They were sizable representation of uh, activists from Gabao that we also predicted and we're expecting more people will be joining those uh, activists abroad. So this is all I can say at this point. We know, for example, that currently um, the UN Special Rapporteur on uh, Minority Groups, uh, Fernand de Varenis, is in Tajikistan. Any hope that, that uh, he can help out with the situation i mean he's he's uh, clearly he will try at least be trying to go to gabao absolutely i mean the the visits like this the more visits we have you know it's going to be better i i know obviously they, they they have certain resources and time that they cannot completely allocate to gorno badakhshan autonomous oblast but this is at least some kind of hope you know and and uh, it's it's obviously good i have not talk to him and i don't know what his specific agenda will be but it says that he will be visiting about which is helpful that's what that's what it was happening about for the last 30 years not too many uh international organizations outside of aga khan development network were present in the area so that's why it's any other organization like un u.s embassy european union now we see more projects that they developing over there we see hydropower station we see you know school renovation the more people go and the more uh, th- at this point all the people need some kind of psychological support you know you know mean so when when people see in this hard time when you know somebody will come and and give you support say you know give them some hope i think this is 
most important. But if there comes comes some humanitarian assistance, some humanitarian project, that's going to be you know it's, it's it's a bonus. But at this point, any visit, I think it's it's significant and will be welcomed by 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 people of Gobao, and uh, I, I'm sure that uh, all international organizations, representative and and experts as well. Thank you. And uh, time for your last comment. What what would you like to say? I must emphasize that the Tajik authorities claim from a couple years ago, stating that the Tajik opposition no longer exists, have proven to be false. I distinctly recall the moments when Tajik authorities and the supporters were sure of the of the uh, some statements they were coming from the individual activists at that time they were literally laughing uh at them you know i remember one of the warlords when he was reading one of the statements he he gave an interview and he said what do you think about this emerging voices of opposition coming from abroad they were laughing i guess who is laughing now i mean we can see we didn't see the ramon coming into the into the uh tv after, you know, in these two weeks. So, uh, I mean, and we do see a significant growth in number of activists. We see a lot of people coming, joining Tajik opposition, and we see informational campaign that the Tajik opposition launched. It's really full scale. The YouTube channel, they're already shaping public opinion in Tajikistan. It's huge. They have, uh, uh, they have increasing popularity in Tajikistan, and these platforms uh, became a hub for substantial exchange of views that people go vlad they talk to them i mean however i mean we all see it's coming with a heavy price we see that a lot of the relative of the activists experience harassment and intimidation but i don't think it's going to stop because you listen to some of the activists they said listen you know we're on this road nothing's going to stop us and and you can see how determined they are and the last comment I would say that uh, if there is, no, you know, there has to be some kind of dialogue. And when Steve mentioned about the, the the Western countries, have to, you know, tell them bluntly. Listen, you know, if, if there has to be a di- dialogue. Otherwise, uh, I don't think this protest is going to be only when the president comes. That actually potentially can disrupt other official visit and the, the whole embassy diplomatic mission works abroad. So I just I just think this somehow that has to be addressed, and uh, th- that's all from me. Okay, thank you, Bhakti. Uh, Steve. Well, yeah, and I'm glad, Bruce, that you mentioned the the ongoing visit of the UN Special Rapporteur for Minority Issues. It's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see what he has to say, and I know that his mandate he will report to the UN Human Rights Council. After his visit, and you know, hopefully, uh, we'll we'll be speaking more publicly. But I know that you know his mandate is going to be looking at at the rights crackdown against Pamiris, but also some other areas that I'm sure they're going to look at are, are are the Uzbek population, which never gets mentioned all that much, um, and Kyrgyz in in Tajikistan as well. But you know, I I think that I just want to say as a last word on the report that you know we often talk about enforced disappearances when we're thinking about Chile or Argentina in the 1970s um, these juntas and dictatorships that became known across the world for their brutality and what what happened with those well you know we, we, Pinochet was taken to court in Spain using universal jurisdiction 
And that gained worldwide attention. And the Chilean people and the Argentinian public, they started to deal with these rights abuses and have you know sober and difficult conversations. This was actually in the news very recently, in fact, uh, with, the, with the new government there. And contrast that with Tajikistan, where there is an absolute black hole, where, as we've discussed on a few previous podcasts, uh, Tajikistan does rank among the worst of the worst. I think I've used the term crimes against humanity to describe the campaign in the Pamirs with the extrajudicial killings and mass arrests. And you put that together with the ballooning political prisoner population of hundreds and hundreds in Tajikistan. And it's a nightmarish scenario. And what's interesting or sad uh, is that Tajikistan is not, is not Russia. It's not, dare I say, even you know Israel-Palestine. It's, it's not nearly as intractable when you think about the fact that pressure on Tajikistan could have a, a major impact. And you know I wouldn't take the position that Olaf Scholz or Joe Biden shouldn't meet ever with a head of state. But I do think that if there's going to be that type of engagement, that it's got to be principled engagement that includes some sort of meaningful consequence. And that means I, I really believe, or else I wouldn't be engaged in, in writing this report, that we can have an impact on Tajikistan by imposing some consequences for this abysmal, atrocious behavior in the form of sanctions and, and other methods that can be used, I think, more public statements. In fact, one, one thing that happened this week was the representative of the, of the U.S. delegation at the OSCE made a pretty broad statement that Tajiks are seeking asylum in Europe because they are threatened with torture. And he wasn't just talking about one person. He was talking about uh, dozens of cases. So I think that recognition of the terrible record in Tajikistan, it now means there has to be a new policy, a different approach. And you know, given all the attention that, that C5 and, and the heads of state in Central Asia are getting, I hope that something that comes with that is a willingness to follow through on some targeted sanctions and some really strong statements and a call to action for Tajikistan to release people, to stop the transnational repression and enforce disappearances, and to, to, to really act like a much more civilized member of the United Nations. So ho hopefully we're going to see that, but we're all going to keep pushing for that in the human rights community. No, good recommendations, and I agree. I hope that we do see that. We are, have run out of time, so uh, thank you, Bhakti and Steve, for being on the program. Uh, and big thank you, as always, to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjelis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjelis podcast or the Central Asia and Focus newsletter by visiting Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you very much, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.